Welcome in to another edition of the Hops and Spirits podcast. This time around, we're going to do a little bit of both, hopefully on this episode, a little bit of Hops and Spirits, but right now we're on the Spirits part, and we have Jake Sollick, uh back once again. He's the beverage director at West Main Crafting Company in Lexington. Jake, welcome back. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you. Now, uh, I always like, like I say, I always like to start things out nowadays with one tough question. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't, so... For you, I figured this would be fun. I think I've done this once before with some of my guests, but what was your favorite subject in school? English. Ooh, English. Is, any particular reason? I got really into comparative literature. Um, I've always been uh, really avid into writing and reading. So yeah, that, that's an easy question for me. <laughs> See, mine was math, which I, as I told, told someone else, it's funny because I eventually never did anything with math and went into English, which was my least favorite subject with communi- in communication. So, I mean, it all makes sense, right? That's how it happens. <laughs> now, last time we talked, we did uh, kind of holiday Christmas-style cocktails, uh, but hopefully the weather is warming up for wh- wherever you are, and we can think maybe spring. Happy thoughts, you know, getting out of the cold. Uh, so with that said, what... With, you know, with spring right around the corner, what can people expect to see maybe on menus across the country in terms of the different flavors and different things like that? What, what kind of signifies spring, so to speak, in the cocktail world? It's a perfect time to be talking about it, actually, as we're slowly thawing from all of the snow that we've had the last two weeks. But you'll see a, a combination of things happen on spring menus. First of all, people start to get away from the boozy, bitter, stirred cocktails. You'll see a lot less Sazerac and old-fashioned style cocktails. You'll start to see a lot more carbonated beverages, a lot more spritz-style drinks hitting the menu. And I think there you'll also see menus start to trend away from some of the heavier spirits. You won't see very many smoky scotch cocktails anymore or some of the heavier blackstrap rums, even cast-drink bourbon. People will start to veer away from that into lighter spirits. I think this is the the season when we start to see vodka and gin start to come back on menus. And now for you all at West Maine, you guys are going to get getting ready to release your kind of spring summer uh, cocktail menu. I'm, I'm I'm always curious as to how long it takes you guys to come up with something like this because I know sometimes you do have staples that'll you know continue year after year, or you might just tweak it a little bit. But I'm guessing too, you also always want to add some newer stuff to always keep people interested and intrigued and trying something new when they come back. So how, how does creating a menu work and about how long does it take you guys to do that? Yeah, for us, it's a pretty long process. Uh, I, I know some bars will change their menu every three months. You know, they'll, they'll take a quarterly approach. So you've got a pretty quick turnaround on research and development. We tend to do ours yearly. So we'll have we'll release one menu uh, in spring actually each year. And that'll be six months of spring and summer cocktails. And then we'll do a, a, a small mid-year swap for our fall and winter selection. But overall, thematically, the whole menu um, encompasses an entire year. And it'll take us about a year to put that together. The, the physical aspects of it, just writing it and getting the pictures and all of the cocktails finished, that's probably only about four months. But all of the actual conceptual work behind it, how we're going to make these ingredients, what ingredients we can source, where we can get them from, that takes about a whole year to do. Uh, I mean, like when you say say something like sourcing and all that, I mean, you guys are, are going the whole gamut. It's not just you're throwing two things in. 
you guys are, are kind of almost a full developed recipe, almost like you would think of in cooking. You know, you've got a couple of parts of this and that. Like, I mean, does it start out where you kind of are writing it out and trying things and then slowly work work new things in? I mean, how does that, that work when you're creating a cocktail? Yeah, it's it's a lot like that. Some of it's trial and error. You'll, you'll often get a great idea. You try it. Uh, it's not exactly how you wanted it to be, so you'll tweak it over, uh, you know, a series of tests. Sometimes you'll completely whiff. And you'll have to throw out the concept altogether. It just doesn't work. Uh, but a lot of times it's kind of a, a, a balance between those two. Uh, but we'll often get an idea, try it, because um, we're looking for a specific flavor or effect, and then we'll just really try to dial it down. Something as simple as our gin and tonic. It's, it's on tap here at West Main. And the tonic water is actually made from scratch. We make our own quinine syrup. Uh, we actually carbonate it in-house off of a CO2 tank and then keg the whole thing. So if we try to, if we would use a different style of gin, uh, then we could actually tweak the quinine syrup and add different flavors to it, something that's going to complement the gin that's going into it. Well, that's fascinating. I, n- I never would have thought of having, you know, a gin and tonic already on tap and, and ready to go. But, I mean, when this is what you guys do, your cocktail bar, always coming up with, with really cool and u- unique things. And speaking of some of those recipes, uh, what what are a couple that, you know, for the spring that maybe we can make at home, you know, kind of that single or maybe two servings, you know, uh, that, that can come together and, and we can pull it off at home with, with some confidence? My go-to spring drink, French 75. Uh, our French 75 at West Main, the way that we do it, it's actually one of our best-selling cocktails. But it's, an, it's a cocktail that's very easy to do at home. Uh, you can demystify the French 75 by just thinking of it as being basically a, a gin lemonade topped up with some okay. sparkling wine is all that it is. So you can start with some simple syrup. Simple syrup is just a, a long-winded way of saying a simple sugar solution. So if you take one part sugar and one part water, you can cook that in a small pan over a stove just for a couple minutes until it dissolves and you've got simple syrup. So you take half an ounce of simple syrup, three-quarter ounce of lemon, or if you don't have a measuring cup on hand, that's going to be approximately half of your average-sized lemon that you'd find at a a grocery store. And then one shot of gin, which is about one and a half ounces. Just shake that with ice, strain it into an ice-filled Collins glass. Ice-filled Collins glass is going to be the tall, skinny ones. Uh, Nothing like a pint glass. Uh, That'll Uh work, but you'll be tanked after two of these, so you want to go hit (laughs) smaller glass. Uh, just fill it up with ice and then top it up with sparkling wine of your choice. You could do something cheap like a Prosecco or a Cava works out fine. Uh, but what you've basically gotten is a gin lemonade topped up with champagne. We think that the French 75, the name itself, comes from the World War I field gun, which was, called, which was a French 75 millimeter gun. So the idea uh-huh. is that the, the extra champagne or sparkling wine in the cocktail actually hits you with an extra kick like a gun. Gotcha. That's that's fascinating too, and that sounds exactly like what you would want in spring. Getting a little warmer, uh, you might be able to actually sit outside now and and have these these drinks, you know, in the evening. So I, I love the sound of that, and like you said, it's it's very simple. And that's one thing I always love talking to you is I feel like I can pull these off in my house now. Whether I can or not, that's a totally different story. But I always feel like I can pull it off. Uh, do you maybe have another another type recipe that we might be able to pull off as well? Yeah, yeah. This is this is the season for spritzes as as well and what both of these recipes have in common is that we're serving them over ice a lot of ice because as the weather starts to get warm up you are sitting outside Um, you are enjoying drinks a little bit more you're not trying to warm up so much as 
you know, stay hydrated, quench your thirst. And so having that ice gives you a little bit of extra dilution. It keeps you from getting drunk so quickly, and it also keeps you hydrated at the same time. Whereas in the wintertime, we tend to go for the smaller size booze-forward drinks, something like a Manhattan. So in keeping with the French 75, another really easy drink to make at home, uh, we'll just call it the spritz. It's kind of a, a general term that's used all over the world. Italy and France are two countries that really have perfected this. We don't have a, a big spritz culture in the United States yet, but you're starting to see a lot of books on the subject be published, and I think it's starting to be one of those trending style of drinks. But really easy, you can take anything, um, even a Collins glass, a goblet, highball. Uh, we like to serve ours in wine glasses. Just go ahead and put a, you know, fill it up with nice ice cubes. Put half an ounce of liqueur. That's, that's as simple as it is. It could be an elderflower liqueur. Uh, it could even be some sort of simple syrup that you have at home that's maybe flavored. Uh, it can be an Amari from, from Italy, something like Aperol or Campari. Just one ounce, two ounces of sparkling wine, and then top it up with however much soda water as you want. I usually just add a one or two ounces, just a splash. But the idea is the combination of the sweet and the carbonation is going to kind of offset each other. And what you get is a really refreshing carbonated drink especially if you throw a few pieces of fruit in there, maybe a fresh citrus slice, absolutely delicious. It's a formula one, two, one, um, is how I just teach it to bartenders. You can't go wrong with it. I was gonna say, I mean, that, that is about as straightforward as it, as it gets when you, when you talk about the formula uh, of making a drink. Uh, now, you know, we, we talked to, um, you know, obviously nowadays we've still got to be very cognizant of, of how many people we have for, for events or anything like that. But if you're, you're smart and can do things properly and socially distance, you can still have a nice gathering. What's maybe a larger batch cocktail that someone can throw together. Uh, if they're and hosting some friends over for just a nice evening, uh, you know, or, and can have a nice drink and ready, ready for them to go. Going back to the same idea of the French 75, because I think the French 75 itself is kind of a, a riff on a much older drink called uh, Tom Collins, which is okay. the first gin punch. Uh, it was created in the early 1800s. But this is still one of my favorite get-together kind of drinks because it fits a pitcher perfectly. If you got a 40 or 60 ounce iced tea pitcher, this is the drink for that. Just take four ounces of simple syrup, six ounces of lemon juice that's going to be about four lemons and then 16 ounces of a nice gin you don't have to go high on the proof here don't skimp on the quality but get something between 80 and 94 proof most london style gins will be in in that range put those in the pitcher ice it up stir it for about a minute that'll chill all of the ingredients down but it's also going to add a little bit of water that's going to dilute it down so the gin doesn't quite have a bite fill it back up with ice and then just top it up with a bottle of sparkling water uh, I, I love that and that, that sounds like something that everyone can most people will enjoy that and that's what you're looking for so yeah, it's, it's a sparkling lemonade yeah, no, I love that, and I, I love the, uh, the the French seventy five kind of you know those two play hand in hand. So if you you're enjoying the other one uh, by by yourself or you know with your significant other or or roommates or whatever, and then you you have that this one on hand, you're already kind of uh, halfway there to to making it. And you know you're you're kind of well not kind of you are an expert at being a bartender. So um, is there uh, any ingredient that might sound like spring? that people should just go, no, no, that's not what you want to be trying to put in a cocktail. 
This 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 is a hard question. Uh, as a bartender, I never like to tell people what they should like. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also don't think that what you like should limit what you're willing to try. Just because you gotcha. like something doesn't mean that you shouldn't try something else. Um, especially given our options nowadays in the spirits category. So many different things are available to us. So many brands are starting out. I think it's it's useful for your palate to go ahead and be adventurous and try new things. I would stay away from infused rums. I think as soon as the weather starts to get warm out, everybody wants to... They're thinking tropical vibes, they're thinking the beach, and everybody wants to reach for a bottle of Malibu. I think you should put it away. Uh, most infused rums are actually liqueurs. They're chocked full of sugar. They're full of artificial ingredients. You can achieve the same thing at home by chopping up a pineapple and just putting it in a jar full of rum. Um, okay. So yeah, stay away from the Malibu in spring. I, I, I like that one. And my last question for you, um, you know, because we're trying to make sure people can can learn how to be a good bartender at home. What's something that they, they could find useful uh, that they may not have um, that would be a good addition to any home bar? Probably the Hawthorne strainer. I think that's the tool that most people, you know, the first time you're learning how to make cocktails, you probably go out, you buy a shaker. Um, Hopefully you bought a jigger to measure things out in a spoon. But I think the Hawthorne strainer is one that people probably don't think about. Um, If you've never worked in a restaurant or worked behind a bar, you probably don't understand what it does. But it is the round device with a spring that's going to fit in the top of your shaker and it's going to allow you to strain the ingredients of the shaker after you've shaken out while it catches all of the big pieces of ice. Now it won't catch small pieces of ice, but you can use it in a couple different ways. It'll work great on your shaker, but also, um, you know, something going back to what we just talked about, the large format Tom Collins, a giant pitcher of boozy gin lemonade. You could actually throw the Hawthorne strainer on top of that and strain it out into glasses for your guests. So it's got a lot of different uses that you can use it for. I, I like that, and that sounds like something that is, is simple enough to have and use, and, and it'll be put to some, some really great use, along with all the recipes. And, and Jake, like I, like I always tell you, it's, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Um, the, the recipes you give us are uh, pretty straightforward, uh, but you're making some, some really great drinks that uh, I'm pretty sure we can wow people with that make them think that we know exactly what, what we're, we're doing. doing. <laughs> Good. That makes me happy. <laughs> Well, Jake, thank you again for coming on. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Joining us now on the Hops and Spirits podcast once again is Kevin Patterson, Master Cicerone and National Beer Judge. He's also the manager of the Beer Trap Craft Beer Store and Bar in Lexington. Kevin, glad to have you back. Great. Thank you for having me back. I've enjoyed being a guest before, and I'm sure I'm enjoying it again today. So thank you very much. Yeah. Now, now you know, before we've talked about, you know, kind of the fall beers, the winter beers, um, but the weather, at least in Kentucky, has gotten a little warmer. I think for most it, it has as well, which gives us hope that spring is here. So uh, we're going to talk about spring beers. Uh, so what can, as, especially as someone that sees the beer on the shelves and also gets to serve it to, you know, at the bar as well, what can people expect uh, when it comes to spring beers? Because I know winter, it was a lot more darker beers, maybe more ABV. What are we expecting in the spring? I'm guessing it's not that. You'd be surprised. You still get half them fat. Because, um, you know, let's face it, we do get breweries distributed here from all over the, the country. So uh, winter hangs on to the northern territories and midwestern territories a little longer. 
uh, the Southern territories, not so much. And so it depends on where that brewery is located. If they send beers to us, then sometimes they can send darker beers deeper into the season. Then again, you get some Southern breweries or um, Western breweries that will send uh, the lighter stuff a little bit early. So you do get a mix, but you know, here in Kentucky, uh, the demand from our customers is trending a little bit uh, in that lighter direction. Um, of course, we do see it's transitional as the, the the gardens and the farms start to you know produce more crops and stuff. We start to see more of that seasonal trend to lighter fare, and the same thing happens in beer. So we start to see people asking for um, a little bit more of a standard strength IPA. They don't want the Imperials as much anymore. Uh, they start to look for the sours a little bit more. Those beers have always been popular, uh, but you know during the summer, during wintertime, yeah, you see a lot of Belgian quads through the Christmas break, and then um, after Christmas, it seems like it's a lot of Imperial porters, Imperial stouts. Um, but when you get into those late winter months like we are now, and we start to look forward to spring. There are some styles that seem to do the, the crop up that, that you don't think would do so. Um, and they're still holding on to the winter months, the beer styles like barley wines, uh, Doppelbox, and um, so a little bit more of a multi richer kind of flavor that way. Um, oddly enough, you know, when the weather starts to warm up a little bit, um, they don't really go for the brown ales and porters. Those are more fall uh, beers that people are asking about. Um, but right now, the amber ales. Uh, people are asking a little bit more about amber ales, just something a little bit more sensible, something more like a almost an ESB type of beer, something with a little bit more of a malt backbone um, to kind of warm you up a little bit, but then uh, but something a little bit more balanced and less extreme on either of those fronts. Um, however, you do see a lot of folks, they want to jump right into the middle of summer. They want the Christmas clean, the sour. They want session IPAs. They're ready to open the pools and, you know, grab their, uh, their six pack of, you know, summer shandies or whatever, and, uh, hit the ground running. Uh, so you do get people kind of jumping the gun, but then you have some beers and some breweries trying to hold back a little bit. So, so basically it's kind of, we're at that, that crossover point where you kind of can see a little bit of everything. Um, but, but for me, I know, you know, obviously you mentioned it, uh, you're starting to get the farmers back, you, you know, it, it's kind of like everything else. You're starting to see a few more different things on the shelf at the grocery store. And I'm guessing this is maybe where we start to see maybe a, like a strawberry Kolsch, uh, something that you can kind of sit outside on your front porch, back porch, um, even around a bonfire or something like that and enjoy as well. Yeah. As a matter of fact, the trend here recently has been, Okay, open the doors to the beer trap. The sun is shining down. It's going to be in the 60s. And people, you know, they're, they're going to come in and they're going to ask, you know, let me get this light thing. Let me get this uh, urban artifact beer um, that's a sour, or let me get something of more of a uh, standard strength IPA. Uh, but then as the sun goes down, it starts to get chill and it'll drop down maybe into the 30s or 40s. Mm-hmm. Then they rush inside and, oh, you have this quad on tap. Let me get that Belgian quad. So you do have them uh, switching gears, even in the same uh, drinking session as well. So it's nice to have a transition. One of the neat things about the cyclical nature of beer drinking is once we do get into full flown um, spring and summer, those two summer seasons seem to mirror each other quite a bit. So the same beers are popular and deep spring will be popular throughout the summer and maybe even early fall. Um, and those beers are going to be built around refreshment, crispness, cleanliness, uh, high rates of drinkability. You're breaking out the bigger glasses, maybe even the mugs and fill them with pilsners and lagers. Um, something meant for thirst quenching. You know, when you get finished mowing the lawn, you, know, you kind of want something a little easier on the palate to take to the shower. So those kind of beers are kind of what you're, you're dealing with in spring and summer. 
just the more palatable, easy drinking, lighter stuff, a little bit more effervescent, a little drier on the palate. But then in the, the fall and the winter, that's when you get uh, styles that kind of mimic themselves a little bit there too. And you're not looking at refreshing beers. You're not looking at crisp. You're not looking at clean. The mantra changes completely. Now you're looking for beers with the savory flavors, the deep roast, the more robust flavors, the more alcohol, uh, the imperial status beers that hold on to more sugars. And then you have to do more things to balance it. And before you know it, in, this, in the fall and the winter, when you're drinking beers, you're thinking about beers that have more complexity, more depth, more character. You're not looking for them to be refreshing beers. You're looking for them to have a lot more culinary impact on the palate, something a little richer. Um, food goes the same way. and Beer is not close behind. It'll mimic that trend just as well. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, too. A, a lot of breweries will... Uh, basically whatever maybe their seasonal is now will kind of go through the summer i mean it's it's more of a longer uh, because like you said the the seasons kind of you know mimic each other so because the one that comes to mind is um bell's uh, oberon um that kind of comes out about now and then you see it for a good good while uh, but then once the weather kind of gets a little colder it's gone but but that's kind of the, the the first beer that came to my mind yeah i mean just random random guy number 47 he comes into the bar right Mm-hmm. And uh, he says, Oberon, when's that come out? And I'm like, it's going to be pretty close. Just in a couple more weeks, hang in there. Uh, is that a seasonal? He says, I'm like, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a seasonal. It goes 11 and a half months. <laughs> and so Oberon does have a very extended season on theirs. You know, but a lot of breweries, you know, they will. They have a, a certain uh, regimented uh, process they go through with their scheduling, uh, brewing schedule. And um, they don't have a lot of time for seasonal. So they'll do like one big batch. When it's gone, it's gone. It may be gone a couple of weeks, maybe a month of that. Um, so breweries get to decide how they're going to handle those seasonal trends as well. Um, I think even in Florida, Bell's Oberon is produced year-round. So I think Bell's does have a, a kind of a product um, part of the brewery that brews for the Florida market, and it's a, a year-round beer for the Florida market only, which I think is kind of neat and fitting. Uh, yeah, definitely, because that, that's one that I always look for on tap if I'm. If I'm out and it's nice out and, you know, I'm at a, whether it's the, the, the beer trap or the bear in the butcher, someplace has got the, the, the doors open and everything. It's a, it's a perfect beer for that. Um, you know, you mentioned some of the styles. Uh, one that typically comes to mind is the ghost of the sour beers. I mean, they're out most of the year. Um, but typically now is when I think more people go, Hey, like you said, you know, especially when the sun's out, uh, let me try one of those. So what can people expect with a sour uh, beer because that might frighten some when they hear sour <laughs> uh, but what is a sour goza style all right so the goza style was invented in northern germany around the goslar region uh near leipzig and um one traditionally whenever people made beer they were really at the mercy of whatever grains grew in their area for them it was wheat maybe some uh small portions of barley but it's largely wheat so they used a combination of those two grains but the real catalyst was whatever's floating around in the air before the microscope came along um we weren't able to control fermentation very well we were aware of it we just didn't know how to control it particularly well so you brew a batch of beer and if your region had more bacteria than yeast then guess what that's going to be the catalyst it's going to eat those sugars and turn it into alcohol and acidity when yeast ferments beer, and, and this is kind of the way it goes for most places on the planet, you get more alcohol yield out whenever fermentation occurs rather than sour yield. Uh, fermentation does produce a little bit of acidity in all beers. It's just that in beers like Pell-Ells and Porters, you don't notice it as much. Uh, what you do notice is the alcohol. Yeast just has the tendency to produce a lot of alcohol when it ferments. Bacteria works the opposite. Bacteria almost produces a whole lot of acid and very modest alcohol. 
It's the reason why you don't see a whole lot of imperial gozes. Uh, brewers have to work really, really hard and get really clever when they want to make a high strength goza or Berliner Weiss. Um, so what you end up getting with goza is you end up with a, a lot of acidity. And that acidity means it's going to play a, a big sour flavor on the palate. And most people who aren't, aren't used to sour beers, they're taken back of how acidic these beers actually are. <laughs> Very puckering. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably well-versed in the beer world. So you know how puckering uh, some of these gozes and Berliner Weisses can be. And the brewer now, now we do have microscopes and we have pH meters and we actually can take samples and taste them. Uh, brewers can actually decide when to stop that fermentation with the bacteria so they can lock in whatever sourness they want. They don't have to go complete sour. They can go modestly tart and they can go somewhere in between. Um, generally, we don't want enamel stripping uh, sourness. <laughs> but some people come in and they kind of do want that. Um, but yeah, a lot of your sours anymore, what Americans have done to the Goza style is they've taken it, really cleaned it up. They've really eliminated the need for the coriander and for the sea salt and those sort of things, even though you do see that around a little bit. What they have done though, is they're planted that with fruit, fruit flavors. Berliner by style, the really sour ones uh, from Berlin, they were traditionally, you would use some sort of fruit syrup uh, to add to those. Uh, to give them some character, to give them some balance, give them some extra flavor that the sour beer did not carry on its own. American brewers have taken a lot of liberties and saying, well, let's just add the fruit to the beer. So now you do get guys like Urban Artifact and a few others who specialize in those flavors. They produce a whole lot of fruit beers on top of the sour flavors. And we talk about the sour flavors. You talk about things that might mimic white wine or cider or something really pecan, really dry like that. When you add the fruit on top of there, you really are looking at beer comparisons that use terms like Bellini or Sangria or some other kind of flavors like that because they start to trend in that direction a little bit more, which is why you see those, those beers really popular for brunches. You know, now that you're right, you can open the doors to these restaurants. People want to spill outside and people are getting more comfortable working in the COVID climate, you know, going out to eat now. And so, yeah, when you sit down, you don't have to go with a wine product. You can go with a beer product and achieve the same effect for the spring and summer. Yeah, I, I think one place that that does that kind of com- cross combo really well is is Rheingeist. If you pay attention to their their cans, the Zango and and um, I can't think of the other one right, the Wowie things like that. Um, they have a slightly different logo. It's not their cider, uh, but but it is definitely that nice little cross. And I just noticed the Zango back on shelves. Uh, I think either this week or last week. Um, an- another thing that I always think about too is you, you mentioned it. Um, the fruited ales um, can kind of come in into play a little bit more, like I said, a strawberry colch or even just a, a fruited lager. Um, what can people expect with those? Is it just going to be totally fruit or is it going to be a nice little balance? Again, breweries get to decide on how extreme to take the fruits. Um, when I first got into beer, which is about a thousand years ago, <laughs> um, the old timers who taught me about home brewing, it taught me how to create beer, how to judge beer. Uh, they said that the beer style should stand out first and foremost, that whatever flavor you're adding to it should not dominate the flavor, but should add some complexity, add some charm, add a uniqueness to it without taking away from the base beer. So now you have brewers that, you know, sometimes will adhere to that. They'll just want a hint of apple or a hint of raspberry, hints of cherry. Um, but then you have other breweries who just really do. They want to turn these beers into absolute smoothies. I re- reviewed a beer earlier today by Cliff Harder Brewing Company. It's called Max Profits. 
and it poured just this extremely turbid mob because there's a ton of puree in there. You could tell they they did not they did not put any thought into filtering this beer at all. It is like you can see the silts just kind of laying right there. If you look really close, you can actually see live guppies floating around in it. That's how much fruit and stuff is into these beers. And so you can take them to real extreme. When you taste this beer, it does not taste like a beer at all. It tastes much more like a smoothie or an icy or something you get out of a, of a shake more so than a beer. It does have some sweetness. It does have some bitterness. It does have the ingredients that qualifies it as beer. It has a process that qualifies as the beer. But taste-wise, it couldn't be further away from beer. So it just depends on which brewery, if you really want to hold on to tradition, or they don't want to push into something else altogether. You know, the old timers, they would say these young whippersnappers are being reckless, they're, they're being um, uh, irresponsible, they're, they're, they criticize them quite a bit. Uh, but I think it's a lot of fun. You know, it's, I had a lot of fun writing that review because I was able to use a lot of tongue in cheek terminology. I was really able to pick on the brewery quite a bit and still end the review with it's quite delicious. Yeah. No, I, no and I get that too because I, I think on uh, the first uh, Under the Influence roundtable I, I did with. Uh, some folks on the craft beer, we were talking about the, the Imperial, the smoothie style. And, you know, long ago it used to be, Oh, I had a Sierra Nevada or, um, you know, a, a, some, just something on that level to get you into the craft beer. Now it's, I had a banana raspberry mango beer and that's how people get into it now. But, uh, you know, that's, if that gets you into craft beer, then that's, that's not a bad, <laughs> a bad thing in my mind. I agree. And the one thing I've always taken a lot of pride in, you know, alcohol started differentiating itself in, in, in brands and products about a thousand years ago. That's when we started deciding, okay, L's are supposed to be made of this stuff. Uh, wine's supposed to be made of that. Eventually when we had distillation techniques, we had um, bourbon was going to be this gin was going to be that vodka was going to be something else. And so they invented these really, really tight rules of what these products could be beer is the one that never really hemmed that in beer is the one that says you know we use that barley from over there on that continent we'll pair with this grain on that continent and we use these hops from here and those hops from there we'll use you know nowadays you're seeing hops from the pacific northwest we're seeing hops from japan we're seeing hops from australia all using the same beer and so whenever you're looking at you know what is brewers thinking when they make these beers they're thinking the world is my pantry and when the world is your pantry, why limit it to just grains and hops? Let's go to fruit. Let's go through some of the flavors. Like Hoof Harda, they had another beer, uh, the world's baldest Congo line. And then there's a banana split imperial stout. And yet when you taste it, it's like, well, that's a big stout, but that's a big banana split too. It has all these flavors rolled in. Evil Twin, uh, one of the more recent beers we have from them is Blue Raspberry. And when you pour it, it doesn't pour blue necessarily. It pours green because you put the base beer, which is probably golden, then you put the blue to it. We learned in third grade, you mix those two together, you end up with green. So it pours green. And then when you taste it, I'm like, holy crap, my mind went to whenever I was like eight years old, going to the mall and going to that little candy store. And they had these ices that you pour out of the thing. It tastes like that, but it didn't have sweetness. It had sourness and bitterness instead. It's a sour IPA with blue raspberry. So what you're getting is you're getting a lot of breweries that are sort of saying, um, can we use cocktails as a way to inspire our beer? Can we use banana splits as a way to inspire our beer? Can we use smoothies? And so you're seeing a lot of these inspirations from a lot of other places. And when the world is your pantry, you don't have to stop. You can keep going. You can push. And as long as there's a market there for dupes like me to buy these things, drink them and talk about them, then they're going to keep doing it. 
no hey you're i'm right there with you um i've got a few uh braxton smoothies in my uh um beer fridge even got a couple 450 norths uh, which if you know anything about them i mean shoot, oh. they put pixie dust uh, pixie sticks in, in beer and you name it they uh like you said it's 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 a wide wide variety of what, what can be um in a in a beer um one thing i do want to kind of bring back to you know we talked about like an urban artifact some of these fruit beers typically there may be more on the lighter side but some of them can actually creep up to you know six seven eight percent um and you may not taste that way because like you said it's uh, it brings you back to the icy days or, or a banana split day um so people do need to pay attention to what is actually on uh, the, the can or, or maybe double check the, with the bartender how uh, much ABV these things have. Uh, absolutely, because they can look very innocuous. They can look very innocent. You have an Anderson Valley Goza a couple of times. You think all Gozas are built that way? Not at all. Urban Artifact, I can't remember the name of the beer, but it's a scaled up version of Gadget. And so it's scaled up to 14% alcohol. So even though the tendency of bacteria is not to produce a whole lot of alcohol, brewers have learned how to use new techniques, how to stop fermentation when it comes to the, the, the level of the city, but how to continue a, back, or a yeast uh, fermentation long before or after that to get more alcohol built in, more flavor. Um, so yeah, always look at the alcohol content because the days where sour beers were synonymous with low alcohol beers is gone. Uh, so now they can be really, really high. Something else you gotta look out for is some of these uh, sour ales they balance with a lot of stuff, not just barley and fruit. They'll balance with lactose. And if you're sort of have this um, aversion to lactose, they don't always say so on the label. So it takes a lot of homework sometimes for uh, the consumer to sort of say, if I have a problem with a certain ingredient, to make sure it's not in there. Um, I think most of the wiser breweries will say lactose. They will say whether it's peanuts or hazelnuts or almonds. Uh, so they'll list these things, especially if they know that there's a high rate of aversion among the populace to make sure that, you know, hey, we all may all make our customers sick. We love them. We want them to keep spending money. We got to take care of them. Um, so uh, so we got to look out for those things too, not just the alcohol content. And and then before I, I let you go, I always got to ask this. What are, what are some uh, breweries or beers that uh, people should be on the lookout for? Uh, uh, that, that you've been enjoying or, or that they would enjoy? One of the neatest new breweries that came to uh, the local market was Fatheads mm-hmm. uh, near Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, they've traditionally made some really stellar Midwestern or West Coast style IPAs, but they're starting to get into the hazy game too. They make some really nice beers there. A few collaborations kind of rolled through the, the beer trap. Um, we've had some of their stuff on tap. The Hop Juju, uh, Headhunter, those are very popular. But those are brands that's been out for a very long time that people are happy they don't have to travel to get anymore or trade uh, to get anymore. They can actually just come down to your local beer store and uh, pick those up. So the Fathead stuff is a very nice welcome. Uh, there's a lot of breweries that are kind of toying with the idea of maybe coming into the market. Um, I know Firesaw Walker, they've been looking into the market for a while. Now that the, the restraints of COVID are starting to lift, I expect them maybe to make a move. And I hope that we're part of that expansion. Um, that could be a lot of fun. Um, Sun King has had a few products on the market here locally in the last couple of years. But it looks like they're w- wanting to pull out some big guns. Uh, we have three of their beers on tap right now that's pretty intense. Um, one is the Shadow Proof with Coconut. That's a bourbon barrel aged imperial stout. And it tastes like absolutely like a mound's candy bar. <laughs> Ooh. It's really nice. And it's a uh, clocks in at 15% alcohol. That's then, one you uh, got to watch. <laughs> exactly. And we have two other beers on tap, uh, whiskey barrel quad. Uh, that's really good. The pour is really dark, almost like a stout. Uh, another is a barley wine. It's a, a bourbon barrel barley wine. So those three are on tap right now. And so it's nice to see some new offerings. I think during COVID, 
a lot of breweries, they stuck to the core brands. They stuck to what they know. And I think customers kind of react to that. Like, they're very content just come and get a six pack of something. Just, I want to turn my brain off. I want to buy this beer. I want to sit on my porch and stay home and healthy together. Mm-hmm. Uh, just drink these beers and drink them all the time of day and night. doesn't matter. I'll, no, there are no rules this time, like a year ago. <laughs> um, so, but now I think, think we're starting to work back into a more normal uh, pattern. Uh, so I think breweries are like, you know what, there's a market out there. Bars are opening up. The taps are flowing. We need to start making some beers that's going to encourage people to want to drink these. And so get, get customers engaged by making some more unique brands like the Sun King stuff has done. Um, Fatheads is a very bold move to try an expansion right now. But I think the timing is right. If breweries want to extend into Kentucky, I think there's some room. Well, Kevin, I, like like I always said, you're, you're a wealth of knowledge. I always appreciate you, you hopping on and, and hopefully uh, the weather will stay warm and everyone can get out safely and, and enjoy a few, few beers. Jonathan, it's always my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Uh, I love it. We definitely hit the hoppy side and the spirit side this episode. I appreciate Jake and Kevin both hopping on again uh, to talk with us. Uh, like, I, like I always say, it's, it's great to have those two guys on. It's like a tag team effort because Jake gives you the uh, in-season cocktails and some ideas to uh, maybe make at your home bar. Uh, Kevin lets you kind of know what spring beers or what beers in, are in season when you go out and what you can expect. And if you're looking for other ideas or other beers, Uh, that may be in season different times of the year. Check out our past episodes with Jake and Kevin. We've had them on several times. They're a blast every time. It's so informative, so informative. Really appreciate them. And we appreciate you, which is why we want you to be our drinking buddy. That's where you can join our Drinking Buddies Monthly Club where we do a giveaway every month, uh, all sorts of goodies. This month we've got some T-shirts, some swag from Traverse City Company, uh, Whiskey Company, West Six Brewing Company, uh, even Goodwood Brewing Company as well. And then you get a chance, or your choice, whoever wins, of either picking something from my bourbon bar or beer fridge. There are some some limitations there, so check that out. But guess what? It's free. All you do is got to sign up. Go to any of our social media pages, at Hop Spirits, all one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Click the link and just follow the directions to sign up for our Drinking Buddies Monthly Giveaway Club. Uh, like I said, we've got some great giveaways. You'll also get a weekly email that has uh, some news. Uh, we do a six-pack of news. You also get some information about the podcast and a whole bunch of other fun things. Um, don't forget to check out our partners in crime, One Sip Beer Review. They're on Instagram at One Sip Beer Review with near daily beer review videos, some cool giveaways, and a whole lot of fun. That's at One Sip Beer Review on Instagram. And I would be remiss if I didn't tell you to check out our 60-second uh, give it a try, a 60-second highlights that we release every Sunday night on our social media and our YouTube page um, where we highlight a different beer, whiskey, bourbon, cocktail, or something similar in that vein uh, every Sunday night at 8 Eastern on our uh, social media pages and YouTube. Remember, if you can, give it a try. And until next time, cheers, everyone. <laughs>